You are tired of average. You want more out of life. You know you're capable of something greater. This show will help you become resilient in your home, at work, and in your community. Welcome to the Resilient Humans Podcast with your host, Kevin Wood. Welcome back to the Resilient Humans Podcast. And this is an awesome episode because it's my guest's second time on the show. This is only the second time I've ever had somebody on the show twice. And just so you know, she's a registered dietitian, fellow enlisted coach, keynote speaker, and founder of Prosper Nutrition, and also an all-around happy person. Jen Broxerin, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love that you just talk about resiliency. I think it's one of my all-time favorite topics. So I'm so excited to be back. Awesome. So what go into that. Why, why is that such a hot topic for you? Why do you enjoy it so much? It is like the gym or the muscle of your mind. So as much mm. as I love fitness and expressing myself like physically through sport and different forms of exercise, I think resilience is one of the most important brain muscles. And the more you can work on that muscle through challenging times and how you choose to show up, the better and better your quality of life is. I think hard things don't necessarily have to make us hard people. I actually argue I'm a very happy and positive person, but the hard things have allowed me to have the success and the mindset that I have to appreciate life to the level that I do. That's cool. And have, have you always thought of resiliency in that way? Or is that kind of developed over time as you've gone through different experiences? I think it's definitely developed over time. I mean, there was one book in particular that was a strong inflection point and the book's title actually was resilience, you know, hard one living for whatever it was. It was by a Navy SEAL, Eric. So-and-so I apologize, Eric, I forget your last (laughs) name, but I remember reading that and being like, this should be on every high school students reading list, like Shakespeare. Sure. But reading a book on mindset and resilience and dealing with hard things without the poor me victim mentality, I think is really important. And then, you know, you, you just, every time you overcome something difficult, you have that little bit more strength and confidence in yourself that you're like, okay, I can do hard things. So I'm not afraid of hard things anymore. It's just, if a hard thing comes in my path, I can do hard things and you just work through it. So yeah, definitely developed over time. That's cool. I know we've had a mutual coach, uh, Mark England, and he, he constantly asked the question, have you ever had a a course in high school on this stuff? And the answer is always no, you never, (laughs) right. It's always math and English and social studies, all that stuff, but nobody ever talks about mindset or language or resiliency. Mm -hmm. There's no course on that. And there very well could be, Mm -hmm. maybe that's my next, uh, endeavor. There you go. The high school course for resiliency. That'd be actually pretty cool. It'd be fun. Yeah. Cool. Um, what have you been up to? It's been a little while since we chatted. So, uh, yeah, fill me in big, exciting update. I have gifted myself six months of a sabbatical. And when people often hear the word sabbatical, they're like, Oh, well, you must be burnt out or you must really not like what you do. And in fact, it is the opposite. So weirdly, this was always a part of the plan. And I have Tim Ferriss and the four hour work week to thank for this original idea, which is don't work your entire life to then retire and then go have that fun and that break and that exploration, build these mini retirements into your working professional, like adulthood. And what I wanted to do with intentionality was to just carve out space and time and unhurriedness, which I think is a true rare commodity 
in today's hustle and bustle culture. And I wanted to just go deep in reading books that have been on my to-do reading list. I wanted to go into the woods and hike a ton. I'm going all over the place to visit friends near and far that I haven't seen. I wanted to go on podcasts and have just interesting conversations with people that I admire and look up to and have gotten a lot of value out of what they put out in the world. And then in a really beautiful way, my company, companies, plural, are now at a place where it forced me to test my systems and scale mm -hmm. so that I had to put these things in place so that things could run without me in the day-to-day. And this is my six month period to test the infrastructure I've been building, but I also wanted my team to grow in my absence where I'm still there in a leadership role from afar, but I wanted them in those day-to-day -day challenges to know that I trust them enough that they can actually go and handle it. And obviously last time I was on, we talked a little bit about my cancer journey and we can link back to that, but life is just so short and so precious. So I want to squeeze in a bunch of the really fun stuff that's been on my bucket list that I haven't had a place to drop it in. So I'm going to motorcycle race school next month. No way. And I'm going to learn how to like race motorcycles on a track. I'm with one of my good friends. We're going to go down to Costa Rica and go surfing for a week. I'm going to see if I can meet up with some entrepreneur friends and go hiking in British Columbia. I just discovered this hut to hut across the uh, Dolomites in um, you know Europe and go hiking way up there. I just want to go do, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. I just want to go do some epic shit. You know, hey, life is fun and you gotta, you gotta take every, every day for, you know, what you can squeeze out of it. So that's what I'm doing on my sabbatical. So it doesn't sound like it's going to be very like <laughs> restful, which is fine. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. Like if, if we go away on a trip, I'm like, all right, what are we going to do? Like. I want to build as many experiences as possible. So right. after the show, we should talk because we just got back from Costa Rica in April and it was unreal. Like we did, I surfed for the first time when I was there. Unreal, unreal so experience. So much fun. Yeah. Like I think I tried to get up on the surfboard maybe 50 times <laughs> and I caught a wave like good twice. That's what it's it was all so about. It's so worth though. it, right? Yeah, like, rep and rep and rep. Yeah. Yeah. Was, My one was... rule for rest is no alarm clocks. So that's the one rule of the sabbatical, no alarm clocks. But what's funny is I've been waking up at like 545 in the morning, yeah. like, let's get going. But then if there's a day I wake up and it's like eight o'clock, that's okay too. There is not a right or wrong. It's just, okay, body, you get a chance to sort of have that deep breath, reset yourself and then go out and have a lot of fun. That's awesome. Have you tested those systems before? Or is this like, like, it seems like six months is a long, that's, yeah. a, that's a huge chunk of time. I know for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to start when I first started this, it was like, I'm going to see if I can get away on a weekend yes. and then it turned into a week. And then it was yes. like, all right, two weeks I can do this. Yeah. So did you have What's, some buildup up to then? For sure. I mean, I was decluttering some university notes and I was in this leadership class and we were doing like a journal exercise and goal setting. This is so sad looking back, but it shows the workaholism, toxic hustle culture. And I set the goal to take a half Sunday off per week. Like my rest was a Sunday afternoon was to not do work. And now this is obviously going back eight to 10, 10 years ago, but obviously going from working seven days a week, way too much to earning that half day a week off to obviously full weekends to then week long or two week long vacations. So, uh, yeah, just a lot of, one of my favorite business books that really helped was the buy back your time by um, Dan Martell. And I just have his voice in my head. They got him on the audio book where you can actually hear him read it. And he's like 80% done well by someone else is a hundred percent awesome for you. 
So yeah. I just remind myself, people won't do it maybe to my full standard, but 80% good enough means I'm a hundred percent off. So that's, that's a win. That's sweet. Dan's actually from Moncton. He's, he's from here. So away. yeah, he used to be part owner of a CrossFit gym in town here. So he's familiar with all the goings on there you go. here. So yeah. Um, let's shift, uh, shift gears. Cause you are a registered dietitian. That's your, obviously your passion and, and what you're, you're into what, what, first off, why nutrition? Like mm. Why, why is that even, a uh, an interest for you and why is it so important? Yeah. Oh man, I could go hours and hours on that, but I'm going to give you the really short, spicy version. Give me five, um, five tweet links. Okay. <laughs> One, my dad almost died when I was a teenager from a heart attack. And the first thing my brain did was food is going to save his life. So that got me interested in nutrition. Uh, two, when I was in high school, I was working at a sports medicine clinic and I was just shadowing different professions, figuring out something in healthcare and science and people. And of all the professions, the nutrition coach, the registered dietitian, I was like, that's an interesting job. Uh, three, personal eating disorder. I think for many nutrition coaches, they've battled a very unhealthy relationship with food or exercise or body image. And so from a genuine place of recovery and wanting to try to help others not go through the same toxic diet culture messaging I picked up on, I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted to be one of the good guys and help people really embrace like nourishing their body, but with love and respect and without creating long-term damage. So those are my three, my three big pulls as to why nutrition. Cool. You mentioned the toxic diet culture off. Well, we all know that there's a ton of these crazy myths out there. If you right. could wave your magic wand and get rid of one or two of those myths, what would that be? Ooh, I love that question. Okay. One is that I think you can, one myth is that you can fully control your body to the exact size or weight you want it to be. And I'm going to give a fun metaphor with that. I want you to think about Kevin, the size of your feet right now. I bet none of your listeners, I hope, know the size of your exact feet. That's not something they really think about when they tune in. Do you know the size of your feet, the size of the feet of the, the members of your gym? Are you really, really tuned into that piece of information? I only know those that have like really small feet because right. like, how are you standing up right now? <laughs> right. But that's it. Yeah. But what's amazing is that all of us mind our own business and we just buy shoes that fit the size of our feet. So as opposed to saying only size six or only size 12 feet are beautiful and a, the attractive standard, everyone just minds their own business. They accept what their genetics have sized their feet to be, and they shop for shoes that are comfortable to their size. So I think one fairy godmother thing I wish I could do with a magic wand is I still am encouraging, of, you know, healthy movement, healthy uh, eating patterns, healthy self-talk, healthy sleep patterns. Like we still want to care for ourselves, but being a little bit less attached to the one beauty ideal of this weight, this size, this shape. Uh, if we just take great care of ourselves, your body's going to settle wherever it needs to settle. And then you just shop for clothes that fit that healthy body for you. I think our world would be so much less stressed out and much happier uh, and much more stable in a healthy weight for the long run. So if I could, I would like imprint a chip in everyone's brain that like related to their body size, like their feet. You don't overly think about your feet. 
you buy shoes that are the right size and you just get on with your day and you climb mountains and crush workouts because your shoes are comfy and they fit your feet. That would be one of my big ones. Cool. Does that, how does that relate to the, when, what you just said, what I'm thinking about is outcome goals versus process goals. 100%. So the outcome goal is like, I want to weigh this much, yeah. but the process goals of what are you going to be doing along the way to get to that outcome? So you're yeah. not really like, you can't control the outcome. You can't totally. just wake up and and there it is. You actually have to do the things. Mm-hmm. And so is that kind of what you're mentioning or, or what you're talking about is like focus more on the process? Absolutely. It, at that point, the outcome is almost irrelevant because if you focus on the journey, and I know that's a little bit cliche to say that, Another way I think about it is I focus on the identity, the kind of person I want to be. Who do I want to show up every morning? What version of myself do I want to put out to the world? So this morning I got up and I went to my CrossFit class and high five some people at the end of the workout and felt really good moving my body, you know, came home and had a nutritious breakfast and then took a little stretch break. And whether that correlates to a body size or a weight, end of the day, five years from now, I just like the version of me that gets up and is active and is eating well. And I think for so much of the health information, it's they're selling outcomes because it's flashy, because it connects to the sale, because you get the beautiful before and after, but really the happiest, healthiest humans I've met are the ones who pretty much ignore the outcome. And they're focused on the identity piece what version of me do I want to be today? And so when you connect your identity to your day-to-day habits, your day-to-day routines, that creates the best, healthiest version of you, but you have to detach it to that true outcome. This, like I'm, I'm going all in here when you talk, (laughs) because this is fascinating to me. I've, I've, when I first started coaching nutrition, it was like, macros, weigh and measure, Mm -hmm. like very rigid rules and very quickly realized people will get results, but they're not going to last. Right. So then it turned into habit-based coaching and that's still not, not quite enough. It's better than what I was doing, right? but it's, it's not, I haven't crossed the finish line yet. And so when you talk about identity, Mm -hmm. where do, where do values come into that? Oh my gosh. Such a good question, Kevin. So I think you're on that right transition of very information-based coaching didactic, right? Here's your meal plan. Here's your macros. Here's your number. I'm the expert. You're going to listen to me and hit your targets. I would call that kind of like phase one of coaching where most nutrition coaches start there because that's what they think nutrition coaches are supposed to do. Hand up. I started there myself. Phase two nutrition coaching is Ooh, maybe there's a better way. Let's look at the habits, the routines. How do we get people to be more consistent? That's definitely an improved evolution to the phase one. But what we're talking about here is this kind of more evolved phase three coach, which is they're still coaching the habits and the routines, but they're helping the person explore their self-talk, their words, their mindset, the identity, the way that they see themselves. And so for me, with my clients, I do a lot of anchoring to powerful words, powerful statements. And this is where we have our shared and lifted background where that work really comes in. I did this before I joined and lifted, but there was one thing I did around creating a vibe in our office. And so I have three photos framed. um, And if this is recorded, can I actually like walk you around on my camera so you can see? Go for it. Okay. So I have it on both levels of my clinic. I have one upstairs in our counseling room. 
and I'm on the downstairs level. And if you can read over my shoulder, what do you see on our three signs there? First off, I love the the calligraphy, like the text uh, of it. So it's be curious, be kind, be honest. That is exactly it. And so I found that when we added those three words and we have them framed in each of the counseling rooms around our clinic, it created a space for people to understand the tone and the way we wanted them to talk to themselves. We were also going to role model that. So when we explore behavior change, we're not finger ragging and scolding and shooting all over them of you should do this. You should sleep more. You should chop your vegetables. You should pack a lunch. You should eat more protein. Instead, we're going to be curious and go, this is the reality. And I'm hearing you say, this is where you'd like things to be. Can I help you find a little staircase where we break it down between this is where you are and this is where you'd like to go. And together, we're going to build you just a very realistic step-by-step staircase or step by rung by rung ladder that just allows you to get a little bit healthier. And then we often say the phrase, you know, better is better, forward is forward. But again, we can only start with curiosity. This is what is. And what are some of the barriers? We're not mad. We're not, you know, victim um, mentality or blaming our circumstances. It's just, this is what we're up against. And then this always solution oriented thought process of what can I do to be that little bit better? Kind to herself really brings in um, a lot of Kristen Neff's research on self-compassion and behavior change. So Brene Brown is another researcher who's quite, uh, quite profound in this area, but what is fascinating is shame and judgment has the net negative effect of what you hope it will do. It actually does not help anyone change their behavior. You have a horrible offender in jail, shaming them and judging them doesn't make them any less likely to repeat offense. If you have a kid that's being bad air quotes, shaming them doesn't actually stop the behavior. So instead, again, we think about our neurological and physiological response. We need to keep our brains online. When we feel shamed or judged, we get amygdala hijacked and we shut down clear-headed thinking. So we go into that fight-flight defense mode. People can't make good long-term rational decisions when they're in fight or flight. So the kindness element is just reminding yourself that we're all human. We're going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes and trip up. Can we just have a breath and then go, huh? What happened there? I guess I tried a tool that didn't work for me, or I guess I was underprepared. Huh? Look at what happened. So you're just sort of, I I call it the curious detective. You're going around with a notepad, just noticing and naming what is real. You're not judging the facts. It's, It's just the facts. And then what I do is we hand it over to our wise guide and the wise guide's job is to just go, got you. Like I'm here as a best friend. I'm not going to enable, but I'm going to gently take your hand and go, I know this is where you want to go. Let me help you just dust yourself off and find your footing. And we'll just get you back on that ladder, back on that staircase. You just got to take the next step, or maybe you're tired. You just want to hang out on the step, like sit down and have a rest. Let's just hold ground here for a little bit. It's holiday time. You've got a lot on your plate. You've got in-laws coming. You don't need to climb a step right now. Just just maintain the step. Let's have a rest. And then we can pick up and get going again. So I, I talk a lot in this idea of three voices where there's an inner bully, a curious detective, and a wise guide. And thankfully we can do a two-on-one because if we have our curious detective and our wise guide join forces, they can generally wrestle the bully down and go, shush, we don't want to hear from you. So that is what the spirit of be curious, be kind, 
the honest is all about is the honesty comes from the detective, the clue finder. And then that curiosity and that kindness is a lot of your wise guy just being like, huh, what is like, what's the reality of your life? And how can I help you again, lean into your identity of that happy, healthy person that you're trying your best to become, or that you already are not even becoming, how do you be even more of the happy, healthy version of you? You mentioned those three before in in that last episode, and like I've I've said this on multiple episodes, I always learn something. Like I feel like doing these podcasts are almost selfish because I'm like, ooh, what can I learn today, and how can I yeah. use that with my clients? And I actually just use that curious mindset strategy, I guess, with a client today. How did and it go? She's experimenting with intermittent fasting and she's just shortening your window. So after mm-hmm. supper, she's done. And then it's the next day at 10 or 12, um, she'll start eating again. And so I said, neat, let's like, I'll, I'll back up a bit. I let them know that I don't know all the answers. Mm-hmm. I don't know them. I don't know their situations that they're in day in and day out. Only they know, or if they even don't know, they're going to find out. Mm-hmm. So I've said, what are the words? What are the stories that you're telling yourself while you're doing this? Is it, you know, if you're feeling hungry at nine and it's not quite 10, what are the words that you're telling yourself? Are you saying, no, don't break this rule? Like, is it a negative thought or is it like, you know, you made it till nine, you're doing great. You only have an hour to go. That's more of a positive or it could be completely yeah. neutral and somewhere in between. Whatever they are, write it down. And then come back in two weeks when we meet again and let's, let's explore, let's see what came up, but don't judge it. Don't, you know, you're not, you're not there to say like, this is good. This is bad. You're just, this is what it is. That's your detective can, with the notepad. Right. And then you yep. can explore and kind of come up with, okay, well, is this serving you? Is this helping you towards your goal? Like you said, that guilt and shame, if, if those negative sentences or words are coming up while you're doing this. It's not going to last long term. So no. we know the outcome is going to go backwards. It's not going to go, get you where you want to go. So how has it been helping? It's been great. So thanks for that uh, that lesson from the last time. I'm so glad. Yeah. Now, I've had this question written down and we kind of talked about it a little bit before. Uh, we both know a lot of similar uh, coaches and gym owners a lot of us have our own uh, community Facebook groups and mm-hmm. mine's, mine's res- resolved around uh, fitness, nutrition, and mindset. A lot of people's are, are as well. A lot of them ask this question in their groups. They say, what do you struggle with the most? And they ask, is it fitness, nutrition, or mindset? It's kind of like a, a little poll. Yeah. I already know how people are going to answer. That's I why I, I know the answer too. <laughs> I don't really ask it, but most people will almost always say nutrition. Why do you think that is? I think there's a multitude of factors connected to it. So one is there's just so many more decision points in the day around food. What do I have for breakfast? What do I have for lunch? What do I have for dinner? What do I have for snacks? I'm, I'm stressed. I'm emotional. Do I eat? Do I not? Do I resist? We're in a very built food environment that has food stimuli absolutely everywhere. So when you think about exercise, you hear the whole, oh, it's 4% of your week, right? An hour of the day, or, you know, whatever the numbers work out to, depending on if you go two times, three times, four times, five, six times a week, but food is a much larger percentage of your week. You have to navigate. 
Then you have to throw in layers of influence. We have advertising influence. We've got social media influence. We've got family member influence. We've got food is attached to socialization. So those two things already add just layers of complexity that maybe exercise doesn't have to compete against quite the same way. But food is a tricky one because it's so much more than just what we eat. It's where we eat. It's why we eat. It's how we eat. It's who we eat with. It's connected to, again, that diet culture of, you know, body shame. Do I have the most beautiful, best looking, lean enough body? Um, There's so many messages that larger bodies are very, very unhealthy bodies. And then all that layers of shame can lead to stress and binge eating. And I think we're an overworked, tired society. So if you look at even differences, if you've traveled to Europe versus Canada or or North America, I should say, because obviously we've got listeners from all over, food there isn't so calculated and overthought the way it is here. It's a little bit more fresh. You walk to your market or you, you know, pop in every couple of days because they don't have big refrigerators. They tend to like really honor your lunch break, like stop and you get an hour off for lunch and you go outside and you eat and you take a little walk. And so because they have these built-in breaks in their day and food and socials done in just a very like kind of cohesive, uh, lovely way, looking at North American food, it's like we're eating our food while staring at a screen or scrolling through our phone. So we're not even present to feel food going into our body. And then we're exhausted bags of flattened meat by the end of the day, who are stressed and overwhelmed. And then we're looking for those super stimulated, unnatural sources of food to get those mega, I call them like dopamine fireworks in our brain, right? We want the calming, the serotonin, the excitement. So it's like a fireworks explosion from sugar, fat, and salts that is stacked. So we have the odds against us, just completely stacked against us when it comes to food. I think we're busy, we're overworked. There's so many decisions, there's decision fatigue, there's rushing, there isn't a slowness And we don't really prioritize prep time. Like we all know we need to sleep most of us seven, eight hours minimum a night. And we're not pretending we can get away on three to four hours of sleep. Yet when you think about the time that's involved in food, we've got a grocery shop, we've got to cook, we've got to sit down and eat. There's a certain amount of time that has to go into nourishing ourselves, but we're all trying to get away on that, like two hours of sleep per night and being like, it's going to be okay. Like I can survive on two hours of sleep. So I always have saw sleep and food the same way. And I'm like, can't the public see that food needs more time than we're allowing it? Just like we would you know, not function very well if we didn't allow ourselves enough time to sleep. So I actually think there's a little bit of that trapped in our cultural norm of overwork. And where do we steal that time from? Our food and our downtime. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I know the time component is definitely huge because that's that's one of the main um, we'll call it a roadblock, I guess yeah. that people, people put up. Oh, I'm so busy. I just so don't busy. have time to cook or prepare anything. So, right. um, there's also that concept of decision fatigue. My wife hates the question. What's for supper. Nobody likes that question. Nobody no. likes answering it. Right. And so what I did is I just said, screw it. We're going to sign up for HelloFresh, and I'm just going to pick the healthiest meals that I can find. Yeah. And so I didn't tell her the box just showed up on the front door one day. She goes, what is this? I go, open it up. And she opens, she goes, this is amazing. And now like we've been doing it for, God, I don't know, almost three or four months now. And it's, it's like the highlight of the week for her. She's like, I, love I, it. 
I don't even let her see what I'm ordering. Like I just yeah. go in and, and pick the, the top meals that I'd like, or that I think we would like. And man, we've come up with some, there's some really amazing uh, meal ideas in there. So she saves all the cards and there's, there's some that she's made on her own. She's like, well, that was easy. Mm-hmm. I can get the other stuff. I have it. It's ready to rock. So anyway, can I have- sprinkle a little bit of dietitian creativity just to riff off your idea there? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So one of the most common things I hear from my clients is like, I'm so sick of like deciding what to have for dinner and same in our household, the whole, what do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want for dinner? So here's just a few ideas, pull from a box, choose what you want. So one is Kevin's idea, connect with a local food delivery service where they do the grocery shopping. They do the menu planning. Your job is you have to just protect the time to cook it, but the planning and the shopping taken care of for you. Um, another one lends itself really well to communities like gym environments. So in our old gym, CrossFit London, we created a healthy meal exchange group. So what we did is we got in little groups of three to four people. Now the rule was no more than one weird food preference per group. So you couldn't be like vegan with no peanuts and that like is like, okay, if this has to be gluten-free because someone has celiac, okay, we're a gluten-free group, or this is a, um, you know, vegetarian group. So it just made it easier to get like eaters with like, but what we then did is one Saturday a month, we would meet together as a gym. We'd be in our little groups and we would do a food swap. So I would get, you know, we all bought the same glass dishes that were the three cup Pyrex, you know, microwavable uh, glass food portions. I was in a group of four friends. And so I would make 16 portions of my flavor. Friend number two would make 16 portions of her meal. Friend three made 16 of her flavor. Person number four made 16. We got together and we did a four-way swap. So I would walk home with four options from each of the four flavors. They would go back in my freezer. And then it's like that partner wad, right? Cause you know, the date your food is due by, and then you don't want to be the one that has like the not good tasting meal, <laughs> put a little bit more effort into yeah. it. There's a deadline it's on the calendar. So it forces you to prioritize the time and cook and make it. And we basically had that going for about four or five years in our community. And it was a huge source of social support um, for eating well. And I use that for a lot of my work lunches. And then another little concept for the people that are sick of the dinner idea is I actually just filmed a little YouTube video on this with a download downloadable PDF. And I can give that to you for the show notes is a healthy charcuterie board. So humans do well with variety and we unfortunately overeat when it's unhealthy variety but you can encourage better consumption with really healthy variety. So what I do at the start of the week, especially in the summer when I don't want the oven on is I make a massive veggie bucket. So I'll put like radishes and carrots and green beans and cauliflower and broccoli and peppers and cucumber. And I mean, you just name it, I shove vegetables in. Then I make a really big fruit platter, same idea, a whole bunch of mixed fruit. And then I make a protein platter. So I might do hard boiled eggs and lean turkey and, you know, hard cheeses and, you know, uh, like dried almonds and nuts and hummus and stuff like that. And then I'll get like a few little fun carbs. So obviously the fruit's going to be some of the source of carb. I might buy like a pre-done, you know, quinoa salad from the grocery store just to save some time. Maybe I get a few pretzels. Yes, they're a more white carb, but you know, in small amounts, no big deal. Um, I might get some dried apricots or figs or um, cut up apples and things like that. And then in the fridge, we just have a big vegetable platter, a big fruit platter, and sort of a protein healthy fats platter. And then when it comes dinner time, we just get our plates, make a little charcuterie platter. We'll go sit outside. You know, we've got a deck that overlooks the river. 
and get like a bubbly water and just take our time. But the cooking was no work at all. And it maybe takes 15 minutes a week to make up the whole charcuterie board. So those are just some fun, like you can swap with friends, you can go over and cook together, you can make a little, you know, finger foodie picnic kind of lunch, you can order food, you know, order meal boxes like Kevin does. So it's just nice to be able to, I call it, give yourself permission to pay for the help. Like I don't change my own oil, I drop it off and my, my car gets my oil changed. And so people often tell me they feel very guilty paying for help with their food. Um, like some of my clients, I connect them with private chefs and they're like, Oh my gosh, like a private, that sounds so like hoity toity, right? Like who I'm not deserving of a private chef, but I'm like, but you have one when you go out to eat, really, that's kind of what you're paying for. So what if you just hired a chef for 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 40 bucks an hour, depending on where you live, you have to cover the cost of groceries anyways, but I've actually had a chef come to our house before and I paid them three hours of time. They made me like massive amounts of meals and popped it in my freezer and ran all the dishes through the dishwasher. I think I spent like 150 bucks on labor. And I was like, that is the best $150 I could spend this entire month. So those are all my creative ideas when you're hitting that roadblock with food. I I did an episode a while ago about why, if if somebody makes you a sandwich, why does it taste better when they make it versus if you make the exact same one? And it's the exact same thing. When you cook your own meals, it desensitizes you to the surprise of what it's going to taste like because you've right. been smelling it. Like when our taste has a lot to do with our smell. And so if you're there throughout the whole process, you become desensitized to the the taste of what you're about to have. And then you don't want it. You're like, uh, it's not, it's not as appetizing or appealing. Right. And that's why like the hello fresh, we didn't do anything. We just opened the box and, and there it is. So it's ready to go. Um, and same with all those meal, um, pre-made meals. Right. We have a, a company in town, a, a vibrant life. Mm. They're done. They yeah. come already made. You pop it in the microwave or in the oven and then you eat it. And mm-hmm. man, I had one of those last week. It was, I'm not a veggie guy. Like I'll tell you that <laughs> I, I do not, they need to be hidden. I've eaten broccoli once in my life and it was covered in cheese. Still <laughs> hated it. It was disgusting. There was broccoli in this plate with some, uh, beef and other veggies in there. I devoured the entire thing. It was oh. so good. Yeah. So that just goes to show I suck at cooking vegetables. Other people are better at it. Yep. I should pay them to do it. So I get all my nutrients because that's the only way it's going to work for me. Yeah. My favorite phrase I just remind my clients is make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And mm-hmm. there's many right ways. I call it up the healthy mountain. Like you can climb the sheer cliff face, or you can go up the backside that's a little bit more sloped and you know easier to climb. You're still getting to that top of the mountain. So if that broccoli gets in your stomach, guess what? Your stomach doesn't care if you chopped it, you shopped for it, and you cooked it yourself. Your body and your cells just care that those nutrients made their way into you. So a lot of times my clients, this goes back to that idea of shame and judgment. As soon as we get into the mindset layer of coaching of just like that bully has been telling you. You're bad if you don't make homemade meals. You're bad if you don't make it yourself. Says who? That's just a weird societal rule. Doesn't mean you have to follow it. How do we make the healthy choice the easy choice in your real life? Being curious. And then now your curious detective and your wise guide can go, oh my gosh, there's like 10 different ways we can get good nutrition into you. 
what's in your budget, what's in your time frame, like what's accessible. And now you look at it as a creative problem to solve, not a chore you have to like drudge yourself through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I swear I've eaten more veggies in the last three or four months than I have my entire life combined. Like that's amazing. Crazy. That's such Zucchini. a win, Kevin. Zucchini. Yes. Like, no, never, <laughs> never. And as soon as they showed up in the HelloFresh boxes and they're put with things that actually like make sense, I'm like, yes, I can't get enough of this. What the heck is wrong with me? Or what is right with me? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What's going right? Yeah. Uh, you kind of answered my next question was, how do we make nutrition easier? So I feel like we've already covered uh, a huge portion of that. I would like to get into some of the uh, practical things. Not that everything that we just talked about wasn't practical, but something you mentioned earlier was the apple test. And it's something that I've, it's a metaphor that I've used with uh, some of my clients. So I'd love, love to hear how you explain it to your clients. Love it. So if you haven't noticed, my love language is metaphors. It's one of my favorite ways to teach a concept, partly because a metaphor becomes a very sticky way to tell a story. And so when a client's in one of those decision moments, most of the time, if you can relate as a coach yourself, they're not like, let me rack my brain for information. When people are like in those highly triggered states, information is not going to save them. But sometimes these short, little memorable ways of thinking about food might give them that cognitive shift of like, huh, okay, how do I want to proceed? And so the apple test is one of those examples. And so I used it for a lot of my clients that were doing nighttime snacking and they weren't really sure why they were. So sometimes it was stress-related emotional eating. Sometimes it was just boredom or a habit. But ultimately we were just with curiosity, exploring the fact that they usually ate after dinner and their goal was maybe body composition or weight loss. And we thought this might've been connected, but without judgment, we were just testing a hypothesis. And so what we came up with is I called it the apple test. I said, you can absolutely eat after dinner. There is no right or wrong to this, but I want to ask you a question. If I gave you a chopped up plate of apple slices with maybe a little bit of peanut butter on the side. Would you be like, Ooh, I am so excited to eat that. Cause if you're genuinely hungry, like if there's a physiological hunger there, that's a delicious snack. Like I'm excited to have apples and peanut butter. If I'm hungry, if I'm not hungry, the apple is not very interesting. Like I would open the fridge, look at the apple drawer and be like, nah, and like shut the thing. Now, if you don't like apples, replace a fruit or veggie, obviously insertion. But the reason I love it is the apple test. I just have to remember two things, two words. So if I'm about to snack, I ask myself apple test. Oh yeah. If I'm not hungry enough that an apple seems like an appealing snack. Ooh, there's probably something else pulling me in to eat. That isn't a hunger reason. So then with curiosity and non-judgment, I just sort of go, huh, what's the unmet need? Is this that I am exhausted and my taste buds are looking for some interest because I've been working on a project on a screen? Am I just tired? And maybe I'm looking for a hit of energy via sugar when really I just need to go to bed. Am I anxious? And this is just something to sort of get up and do and chomp and, you know, slow my, like calm myself down. So now I just look at if I am going to eat at a time of day and I don't notice that there's real true body hunger the apple test helps me start to sort out the layers of the feeling. It's like the door that opens me to ask, what am I really feeling right now? So I kind of call the apple test. It's the door. It just opens the door of, you can still choose to eat for non-hunger reasons, but before you do just check in and go, huh, I wonder what the real feeling is connected to why I feel pulled to eat right now. 
And then like you hear no judgment in the way I'm asking myself that very, very curious. And then when I'm curious and my amygdala doesn't get hijacked and I stay calm and clear headed, I can often work through the emotion without just going into an anxiety tailspin and food just sucks me right in. So it's been interesting to take judgment out, clear headed, you know, um, clarity thinking is there. And then the detective and the wise guide can sort of sort it out and direct me hopefully to my long-term goals, the version of myself, the identity version of me that identifies as a healthy eater. Uh, I take care of this vessel, this body that I'm in, and I have lots of energy. I've used that exactly the same way and actually used the toolbox that you handed out last time with my clients. So they put that, I'll say this, generally the refrigerator is not the issue. It's the cupboard beside Mm. the refrigerator. Yes. So they'll put that in the cupboard and when they open it up, am I actually hungry? So I had them write that. Am I actually hungry? And when they ask it out loud, Again, with that curious mindset, the answer is yes, then eat something. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. But if the answer is no, well, why am I here? Well, I'm bored. Well, if I'm mm-hmm. bored, then I can pick something on that top shelf of the toolbox and go do something. Yes. Might be five breaths. Yeah. You know, I've used that um, that toolbox where the top shelf is anything that takes five minutes or less. Yes. That bottom shelf is anything five minutes or longer. Yep. And so if it's just boredom, you really only need to break that um, hankering uh, yes. or urge in five minutes. It's going to take less than five minutes to break it. And then you're good. You're moving on to whatever else you were going to do for that day, which totally. might even be like brush your teeth and go to bed. Yep. But if it's in the middle of the day, you might need something a little bit longer to get you through. So let's go for a walk or, you know, fold some laundry, whatever it is. Um, I've had people also write in, what are some personal things that, that you enjoy doing, put those in those there, like write them down. It might be play cards with your wife or your kids or take the dogs for a walk, things that may not have been on that sheet, um, but something that they can relate to. And that would actually provide some fulfillment and joy in their life. So yeah, it's been a helpful tool. So thanks. Oh, I love it. Yeah. My, my, one of the things that's so fun about being on the sabbatical right now is I'm just taking a step back to do more giving. So one of the things that my heart's been really pulled to one of my identity pieces is I feel so lucky that this is my skill set. Like for whatever reason, my brain thinks in metaphors, they're very sticky. It's helped a lot of coaches. So I actually was just shooting with my videographer this past week and we built out a whole mini course on just fun coaching metaphors, activities, and stories. And he's like, are you going to charge for it? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to give it away because the more I can put that out in the world and help break diet culture and stop guys and girls and, you know, adolescents from going through an eating disorder, like I did, the more I can help coaches feel more confident and keep their clients around for longer. There's just this big pull towards impact and the ripple effect of a positive relationship with food for the long run. And I thought, I'm on this break from day-to-day client stuff, but I want to keep doing things that have an impact on client health. So that was my fun. Like I call them interesting curiosities. The sabbatical is like, if I have a little itch, I want to scratch, I'm just going to go down the rabbit hole. And so it caught my fancy at the start of July. Then I was like, I think I want to build a metaphors course. How weird is that? But like, that's my jam. And so for any coach, anyone that's listening, even if you're just a nutrition client or a healthy, healthy human, 
uh, it's at prospernutritioncoaching.com slash courses. And I have a whole, f- and the Apple test is in the metaphors course. Love it. That's awesome. <laughs> um, there's another game you mentioned and it's the drawer of death. Yes. That sounds both exciting and scary at the same time. So it please, is. please tell us about that. So our drawer of death is our crisper drawer because it is where good intentions go to die. How 100%. many vegetables in your lifetime have you bought with the best of intentions to cook, to eat, to get inside of your body? They go into their resting home in that drawer of death, the crisper drawer, and they die a slow, slimy, rotten death only to be pulled out and pitched a little bit later. All the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> so what I have to think is one of my university profs, and they taught us in this psychology course about a concept called anchoring. So anchoring um, is used quite a lot in habit-based behavior change. It's where one thing is locked in and you're trying to glue something good to that thing that's already anchored or locked. It's like the holding piece. So I'll give a non-food example and then a food example. I don't always wash my hair every day, but on the days that I do wash my hair and I start with shampoo, shampoo is the anchor for conditioner. So I would never just put conditioner in my hair all by itself. If I start shampooing, then I know conditioner is going to follow because the two are glued together. Um, Many people have like a morning routine with anchoring where they get up, right? And then they make themselves a coffee, a tea, something like that. So the waking up is the anchor to their morning beverage. So with the vegetable uh, crisper or the drawer of death, I thought about it from a moment from the chores of bringing home groceries. And what I would give almost every human being an A++ on is that people put their groceries away. I don't know many people who come home with fresh groceries, they leave them on the counter and they're like, "Eh, I'll get to that chicken and yogurt in five hours. Like, I just don't feel like it. What do you do when you come home with groceries? You naturally unpack your bag and you put everything away. So I thought to myself, I guess I'm already in chore mode. The shopping and the putting the food away is like one anchored bundle. What if I try to glue this healthy habit to the putting away routine? So what I do is I pull out a tea towel. I leave all my veggies out, put all the perishables and, you know, cold stuff away in the fridge and freezer. And the last piece of grocery shopping is I wash all my vegetables and then I quickly cut them up and I put them in a big glass container front and center in my fridge. This is a little bit embarrassing. I'm going to out myself. Uh, Britney Spears toxic was the song that got me convinced this wasn't so horrible. So way back when I was in university, Britney Spears, she was awesome. She still is. And I remember being like, oh, this is going to take so long. But then I got curious and I go, I wonder if I race a song, could I make my veggie bucket faster than the length of one song? And so I started making my veggie bucket to Britney Spears toxic. And guess what? That's how long a veggie bucket takes. It's about three to five minutes. So it's really hard to argue with yourself of, I don't have time where I was just like, it's just three to five minutes. Do that as part of coming home with groceries. And now that's been so wrapped so many thousands of times that I can't not finish groceries without putting a veggie bucket front and center in the fridge. So that was one of my, my favorite ways to beat the drawer of death. And so the vegetables now end up in me. And if one or two went up rotten by the end of the drawer, end of the container at the end of the week, whatever, it's better than an entire pepper, you know, being thrown out or whatever the case might be. I wrote down as you were talking the words decision time Yeah. that oftentimes we think it's going to take longer than it will. And so just the thought of deciding that and, oh man, it's going to take forever. 
when, when you know, like you timed it out three to five minutes, yep. it's not actually that long of a time. So then you're taking that decision time down the road after everything's been put away, right? You're, you're eliminating that it's no longer on the table, right? It's anchored. I love anchor habits. I've, I've used them myself, not just with uh, fitness and nutrition, but also with mindset. People like wanted to start uh, a gratitude journal and they kept forgetting to do it. So right. I was like, all right, every night, do you brush your teeth? Yep. You're going to write the word gratitude on your toothpaste right on the uh-huh. tube. When you brush your teeth, you're going to see gratitude. The next thing you do is write in your journal. And they're like, oh I my love God, that. That's so simple. Yes. It has to be simple. Anchoring is a simple, simple thing to do because we do all these automatic things every day. So what are the things that will, again, we talked about outcome and processes. What are the processes that are going to move you closer to your outcome that we can anchor to the things that you're already doing? And then those things will eventually become subconscious. You just do them. Yeah. And then you'll anchor something else to those, right? Yes. That's, that's it. It's just a snowball effect that starts with one simple habit or anchor, and it's just going to grow from there. I always remind clients the true victory of a habit becoming into your subconscious is I call it the seatbelt. If you do it just like your seatbelt, like, have mm-hmm. you ever set a new year's resolution to wear your seatbelt more? Right. No. Have you ever been in an emergency where you just like forgot to wear your seatbelt? You're like, oh, I'll start wearing it when I come back from vacation. You know, this vacation, I'm going to really take a break from seatbelts. I've, I've had enough of them. It's so automatic. You don't even notice yourself clipping yourself in. So now for me, what's great about the veggie bucket is at first it was, it took intentional thought. I had to think about the anchor point, but now it's just what you do when you put away groceries in my household. So of course, like for most people, if you think about groceries, the anchored part is they just put them away. That's their seatbelt. So -hmm. if you start to practice, you can make that seatbelt extend a little bit more. And what do seatbelts do? They save our life, right? They give us that cushion. They protect us. Uh, So by having my veggie bucket front and center, it protects me that I can quickly pull it out and make half my plate veggies at lunch. If I don't know what I'm going to do for dinner, I can like chop them up into a stir fry really quickly. So that seatbelt, that protection, it's as easy as that. It's as consistent as that. And there's some safety and some self-care preserved in that really good habit. There's, there's that perpetual myth that it takes 21 days to build a habit when there's research that has come out that says it's actually a range. Yeah. It depends on the complexity of the habit. Yeah. So if it's something super simple, it could be as, you know, seven to 10 days to, to mm-hmm. build it and to, to like take a hold. Whereas if it's more complex, it could be in the hundreds of days down the road. Right. And so that's one of the myths that I wish I could wave a magic wand and get rid of is that it may take longer than 21 days and you have to be okay with that. And that's realize like, that's the whole concept of just reality. That's Mm -hmm. the reality. That's the way Mm -hmm. it is. And if you expect it to be sooner and it isn't, you can't get frustrated at that. It's just, you haven't given it enough time to take hold, to actually like put its roots down to actually be a part of you. So. I'm so glad you said that. The other metaphor you're making me think of in my brain when I talk about habits to clients is I talk about a seed in the ground to a little sapling, to like a three-year-old tree, to like a hundred-year-old oak tree. If I want to pull a fresh seed out of the ground that's just started to sprout, it's very easy to disrupt that seedling, right? Flick it with your finger. You just flick it and it's gone. (laughs) So new habits 
are really fragile and they need those reps of protection. And that's where we really want the first habit being about consistency way over perfection. Once we have a tree that's like a year and a half, three years old, I mean, you could back your car up into it and probably knock it over, but you'd have to really start to tug at it because those roots have started to take hold. If I want to take down my hundred year old maple in the backyard, I'm going to need a full on professional arborist. Like that's not coming down without a fight. So early habits, what I always kind of emphasize to my own clients is the habit before the habit. There's the thing you want to change, but what you have to really realize is what you're working on first is you are promising yourself that you're the kind of person who will show up and be consistent. Now your intensity might change along a range, but you're still showing up and you're doing something. And that's why I try to get people to pick habits that are like a toothbrush five minutes or sooner, because if you can do something that takes five minutes or less, you have a much greater chance of being consistency. And so it's like every day you're giving that sapling a little bit of water. Some days you have lots in a watering can, other days you have a drop, but you show up every day and you water that sapling until it's taken enough of a hold that it, it has its footing. And so, yeah, I call that the habit before the habit. And that's one of the first concepts I teach is you might think the first habit we're working on is like eating more veggies, but really we're working on that habit and the habit of just something small, five minutes or faster that you just show up and you be 80% consistent with, because that is the magical habit that will carry you through all the behavior change you're looking for. Wait, now I thought of a new metaphor. Ooh, as you were talking metaphor back, do it. <laughs> when, when people have this idea that they need to change their mindset or, or change their nutrition in order to reach a certain outcome, oftentimes people do the overhaul diet and they'll mm-hmm. change everything all at once. And you and I both know how dangerous that can be, right? Yep. It's you're setting yourself up for failure. And so all I was imagining was somebody juggling. And if you try to change 20 things all at once, it's like trying to juggle 20 balls all at once. Right. You're going to drop the balls. Totally. You're going to drop them. You might be able to keep them up for half a second, but they're all going to come crashing down. And so would would it not be better to learn how to juggle one ball and do that consistently until you just don't think about it. You're just tossing it up to yourself, then add a second ball. And that's what, that's what my whole nutrition practice is about. Let's, let's nail one thing down before we start adding anything else on top of it, create that solid base. Just learn it. You got it. No problem. Okay. You're solid in that one ball. Let's move on to the next one. Okay. Now I'm juggling two balls, but the first one's still easy. Yeah. I'm just focusing on the second one. So going from that, I guess it, the overhaul diet is more like that all or nothing mindset. Yeah. Again, if I could wave a magic wand and, and make that disappear, that would be amazing. And I think the world would be better off. Um, and just be okay with focusing on one thing at a time. Absolutely. Yeah. You had one more uh, metaphor or a, a game you'd like to talk about the three hoops. Right. So this is a little bit of a a basketball game and it's mindset first, but connects back to food. So I call it the three circles of control. We have a smaller green hoop. We've got a medium sized yellow hoop and we've got a really big red hoop. And I want you to think about problems, things that people complain about, things that people stress about, like being basketballs. There are some green basketballs. There's some yellow basketballs and some red. 
The red basketballs are things that you have zero control over. Let me give some funny examples or silly examples. I could do a prayer, a rain dance. I could, you know, get on my knees and beg for a certain temperature or the skies to let out water or not let out water. There's really nothing I'm going to be able to do to change what the weather is going to be today, tomorrow, the next week, unless I get on a plane and physically move myself somewhere else in the world. So putting all my energy into wishing the weather was different is a pretty futile red basketball. Um, I'm just going to set that ball down. I could be really upset with a politician in another country. If I'm not a citizen of that country and I don't have a political vote, there is nothing I'm going to be able to do to get that person potentially out of office. That's a red basketball. The yellows are the things that I have influence over. So I'm a healthy eater. I identify obviously as being a healthy person. I love when my husband enjoys healthy meals with me. Can I force him to get broccoli down his throat? Can I force him? to maybe not have an after-dinner snack. No, I can influence by doing things like click and collect and having veggie buckets set up and you know making our supportive family environment healthy for the both of us. But ultimately, he gets full control over his body and how he would like to eat. So yellows are things that we can influence. So what we want to do as coaches is we want our clients to actually put on a pair of glasses where they see problems and complaints in colors. Green, I have full control. Where can I take ownership and accountability? Where can I take action and actually move those goals forward? Swish, swish, swish. And so I don't, I used to have this client. She really inspired me to make up this particular game because she was a red basketball client. All she wanted to do was come in and vent and complain about her ex-husband and how horrible her boss was and how terrible everyone around her was. She never wanted to talk about things in her direct control. She loved being the victim. It gave her something to talk about and gave her an out as to why she wasn't making any forward progress. And so I just scribbled on a piece of paper, these three hoops, and I started jotting down all the things she was talking about. And then I took out three highlighters and I said, we are going to draw basketballs around each thing right now. That's an obstacle in your life. So where do we have any green issues that you can absolutely do something about? And she looked at her sheet. There's nothing. How many of these can you influence? There was like one or two. How many of these you have no control over? She's like, oh, I have no control over this and this and this, not getting the point of the activity at first. And I said, your whole sheet is red basketballs. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to set them all down on the ground. That basketball hoop is rigged. You will never swish a point. So what we have to now get is binoculars. And I know there are green things in your life you can influence. Well, I don't cook. Could we try a smaller plate? Could you personally go get a smaller plate? You're not the cook in your house where you're not served as big of a portion because you made the choice to put that on a smaller plate. Huh? I never thought of it like that before. Right. Because when you're always looking at the world through the lens of complaints and red balls, you're going to just feel incredibly frustrated. Your emotional state's going to feel really defeated. So when you start to identify those green balls of all the places you can influence and get those points, you start to feel empowered. You have agency to make positive change. So sometimes it's just helpful. I think we all get caught up sometimes in dribbling red and yellow balls. It's just helpful reminder to be like, you know what? I can set that problem down. Let's just put that on the ground for a second. 
And if I am going to wrestle with a problem in my brain, let's go make sure that that's a green colored basketball. And then I can start to go find the net and get some points. So that is one of my favorite mindset games, especially when you're a coach and you've got one of those, you don't want to be mean to the clients that have that victim mentality, but it's almost a visual way for me to show them how the victim mentality is overtaking their ability to problem solve for themselves. That's cool. I've done similar, but kind of in reverse where you, you laid everything out and then color coded. I've had the three circles and they filled in ah. the things that they're able to do. So, yeah. you know, it's exactly as you said, things that you can control, things that you may have some control, but maybe not more influence. And then things right. that you do have control. I always start them off. And I use the example that you gave. I was like, weather. Yeah. <laughs> that goes in this one. Like you have no control over it. Now, yeah. what's something that you do have control over? They're like, um, you know, when, what time I go to bed? Perfect. Yeah. Great. Put that in this first, first bubble. And then they, they can kind of see, I'm like, this is where we want to spend most of our time focused on these ones that you do have control over. These are the ones that not so much of your time, they're still going to come up. You can still talk about them, yeah. but it's when you hyper-focus on them, that's when it becomes a problem. So, you know, you know, as well as I do, people love complaining about the weather. It's just a point of conversation. that's so easy to bring up, yeah. which is fine. But if it's the only thing you talk about, nobody's going to want to talk to you anymore. So absolutely. Anyway, same idea. Jen, this has been a, a another action-packed episode. I know the last one we had, uh, I had a ton of uh, responses that just said, wow, that was, there was so much good stuff in there. And I have a feeling that it's going to be the same thing for this one. So I want to thank you again for coming on to the show. Um, you have something coming up this fall. Yeah. So please tell our listeners about that. We have our next big enrollment period for our prosper nutrition certification. So this is for gym owners, for coaches. I've even had dietitians and doctors who have gone through it to everyday folks who just want to get better at their own nutrition. But we go through all of these metaphors, all of these resources. It just gives you a massive head start as a nutrition coach. And then for you experienced coaches, the, the ones that really go through this are like, wow, this is just giving me more metaphors, more games, different ways to help get certain clients unstuck. So it's from right off beginner coaches to highly experienced coaches, habit-based motivational interviewing, but it has a big identity mindset component to nutrition coaching. So if you're expecting a macros course, that, that's okay, but this isn't it. Um, it's much more in what we discussed today. And if you want a little teaser version of that, if while you're waiting, I just today launched a completely free metaphors, um, nutrition, you know, masterclass that's called liftoff. It's right on our website, which is prospernutritioncoaching.com slash courses. And if you are interested in the big cert, we are doing a draw. So if you put your name on the wait list, one lucky person is going to get their name pulled from the bucket. And their entire certification, like I said, I'm just in the spirit of, I want to gift and be very generous. So we're going to give away a $2,000 certification to one person on our wait list. So someone has to win. Why not you? doesn't really hurt to sign up. <laughs> That's so awesome. And I'll definitely share the links in the, in the show notes here. So if anybody wants to, they can click through and uh, I'm definitely going to dip into that metaphors course. Cause God, I love me some metaphors. There you go. Yeah. They're so useful. <laughs> Uh, anything else you want to go over, Jim, before we sign off today? 
No, just such an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Kevin, for the work that you're doing. I just want to say a congratulations publicly on the success of your CrossFit box. That is a huge accomplishment. And I know you're changing and have continued to change so many lives for the better. So virtual props from awesome. Ontario to the East Coast. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe and I'll see you next time.